Okay, hi, good morning everyone. Uh, we, we just wanted to give a few minutes for people to get settled because we had heard some of the sessions were going a bit long. So, well, welcome to this session. Um, I'm Stella Yee. I'm an associate professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine. And we're really excited to all be here today um, to talk about our basis program or harvest share program. Um, I figured I would just start with allowing each of our partners and folks to introduce themselves. So Steve, do you want to go ahead? Uh, whatever you want. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, can you all hear me? Yeah. Okay. I, feel, I always feel like I'm screaming anyway. Um, so my name is Steve May. I'm the uh, director of CPC's uh, Brooklyn Community Services. CPC is the Chinese American Planning Council, and we're a 58-year-old uh, social service organization serving about 200,000 200, New Yorkers annually in New York City. Uh, of the 200,000 New Yorkers that we serve, I would say that maybe two-thirds of those are from the Asian community, uh, mostly uh, ethnic Chinese. And the other third reflects the diversity of New York, whether it's black, brown, Arabic, uh, Jewish, and so on and so on. And um, I, again, I'm the director of our community center in Sunset Park, which is like some of the work that we're going to be uh, sharing as part of the Harvest Share Basis Project. Thank you, Steve. Steve, go ahead You need to speak on the microphone. We're recording the oh. session. Oh, okay, so okay, okay. okay, sorry about that. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Michelle Hughes. Um, I uh, yeah have been working with um, the basis team and and Stella uh, for the past couple of years. I work with the Glenwood Center for Regional Food and Farming. Uh, we're based in the Hudson Valley, so we're about 100 miles. Um, well, actually, we're a little bit. I live about 100 miles north of New York City uh, in Columbia County. New York, uh, and um, our, my organization's in Putnam County, um, just about an hour north of New York City, and uh, we're focused on building a more resilient and just uh, food system in the Hudson Valley, uh, primarily focused on centering uh, farms and re our regional farmers in our work. Um, yeah, and I can talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And hi everyone, I'm Celine. I'm a project coordinator at NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and I basically just coordinate all the activities and research and all the little bits of the BASIS program. Thanks, Celine. Okay, thank you everyone. Um, so I'm just gonna run us through some contextual slides and then we're gonna have that um, sort of perforated or it, we're gonna hear from our community partners throughout. We're gonna just do a little bit of a round robin. So our learning objectives today are to define the unique and equal roles that farmers, community leaders, and academic researchers play when developing culturally appropriate nutrition programs by hearing directly from each sector. We're also going to be able to recognize a feasible research process to provide in language and culturally appropriate materials to two distinct communities, the Mexican and Chinese immigrant communities, by standardizing some processes while preserving and respecting each of the community's unique needs. And then lastly, we're going to describe how a multi-sector partnership and collaborative approach can have collective impact. So just really broadly, a little bit of like a skeletal roadmap. We're gonna define what the problem was. We're gonna define for you what all of our approach has been. Um, talk about how we've developed and implemented our solution at multiple levels and then finish with some closing thoughts. 
So just to provide a bit of health backdrop for this work, um, Latino and Asian American communities each face cardiometabolic disparities related to diet, but in slightly different ways. So the Latino community, for example, experiences a high prevalence of obesity, an increased risk of diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD. And the Asian American community experiences a low prevalence of obesity, yet is burdened at a similar magnitude as the Latino community with regards to both diabetes and NAFLD. And we really don't have many solutions addressing these dietary disparities right now for these communities. These deficits in knowledge, programs, and research that address diet in Asian American and other immigrant communities have been highlighted by our group and by the NIH Nutrition and Health Disparities Implementation Working Group in their recent review. So on the left of the slide is a review that we did of around 450 nutrition-focused initiatives that have been implemented in the last 10 years. And on the right is a recent paper where the NIH did a portfolio review of their nutrition-funded research. And in both reviews, the need for more research on Asian, Native Hawaiian, and American Indian communities was highlighted. Another challenge with all of this work lies with cultural mismatch. We recently did a deep dive of common dietary recommendations in the United States. So shown on the right-hand side of the slide, these include the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet, Eat Lancet, and the NOVA ultra-processed classification system. And to what extent these recommendations are potentially culturally adaptable. And what we found is that dietary recommendations differ in their origin and in their evolution, but they often have a reductionist emphasis on physical health only, and that some versus others may be more or less appropriate for diverse populations. So does it really make sense for us to be asking people to switch over to a Mediterranean diet, for example? Can we instead find a solution that preserves individual culture, values, and celebrates heritage? Along those lines, there's also emerging evidence of the mismatch of food relief programs for culturally and socioeconomically diverse communities. This is a really nice piece that succinctly summarizes some of the challenges and encourages the reader to consider eight different barriers for the user of food relief programs. Factors such as, this is food? Is this a food I want to eat? How do I prepare this food? Do I have the tools to prepare this food? Do I have the time to prepare this into food? Do I have time to consume this? And can I transport the food I obtained? And lastly and critically, all of these disparities are happening against the heightened backdrop of pervasive anti-immigrant sentiment, fear of public charge, and anti-Asian discrimination, invoking a disrupted sense of belonging and eroding trust in health and government systems. So in essence, we need food programs that help to address dietary disparities in Latino and Asian American communities. They should be culturally relevant and these programs are needed more than ever to reestablish trust and well-being amongst immigrant communities. So I'm gonna turn it over to Steve to talk a little bit about Sunset Park, which is where our uh, Harvest Share program is um, focused. Go ahead, Steve. Thank you, Stella. Um, so just again, like a little snapshot about Sunset Park. So Sunset Park is a densely populated neighborhood in Brooklyn. Uh, there's a roughly, there's over 100,000 
uh, residents in Sunset Park. And uh, I would say that there's 38% that are from the Hispanic Latinx community and also 27% from the uh, Asian community. Again, mostly ethnic Chinese. Uh, of the, of the uh, 100,000 New Yorkers, the 100,000 Sunset Park residents, uh, over 70% of those speak a language other than English at home. Um, so again, that, that really is a uh, testament that this is a very much an immigrant and a working class community. Um, for the work that we do at Sunset Park at our community center, the, the community members that we serve, we've estimated that 80% of those folks that we work with are SNAP eligible. And I think just like, uh, again, providing a context of uh, the, the work that we do in this community. Um, also, like, I think with, uh, with the pandemic and also with uh, some of the challenges that uh, community members are facing, uh, back in, tw uh, again, the spring of 2020 when the pandemic happened, uh, with uh, the food security challenges like the communities have already been facing had, was like, extremely exacerbated by that pandemic where grocery stores, like markets, food vendors were closed down. And uh, I think, you know, just kind of really leading to additional challenges uh, within the Sunset Park community. So with that, I'm gonna turn it back to Stella or Celine. Okay, so now that we set the context of like the systems problem and everyone knows Sunset Park a little bit better, I'm gonna start describing our formative approach. And this really big diagram here actually illustrates the huge lift that has occurred with our multi-sector partners at the neighborhood level and amongst community members that informed and led to the implementation of BASIS. So it didn't just come out of nowhere, there was a lot of thought and work put into it. And so I'll briefly touch on each of these activities in the following slides so we can go over them. So first, with our multi-sector partners, we held a group model building workshop with 14 other different multi-sector partners from November 2021 to January 2022 to understand how we can promote healing from the pandemic amongst immigrant communities through food and nutrition programs. So through these sessions, we recognize that embedding cultural adaptation into all levels of the food system was a shared priority for everyone and identified areas for collective action in centering on nutrition education, food access, policy change, and experiential learning. So outside of these workshops though, what really informed BASIS was the pivots made by our community partners during the peak of the pandemic in 2020. Um, and here it's just really important for me to note that BASIS did not reinvent the wheel, rather we're building on and expanding on the amazing work done by our community partners. And so I'm gonna briefly let Steve and Michelle touch more on what was going on during the pandemic. Thanks, Celine. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, Glenwood is an organization for, uh, focused on building, oh, <laughs> thanks, Celine, a more um, just and resilient food system in the Hudson Valley. Um, we uh, have a working farm. We also have a farmer training program, and I work in our regional food program. Um, and we work through uh, coalition building primarily. And so we really work to bring together uh, stakeholders across the food system to have dialogues 
um, and create solutions together. And so um, I'm just giving you a little bit of background and context so you can kind of understand um, how our, our work sort of developed during the pandemic. Um, and so we have a Hudson Valley um, CSA, Community Supported Agriculture Coalition. And so we bring farmers together with um, community members. Uh, we have 120 member farms uh, that work together on collaborative marketing. We've also brought uh, cider makers together with apple growers to really grow the cider industry in the region. Um, we've also done some work bringing farmers together with healthcare practitioners, um, chefs and seed breeders through our kitchen cultivars program. Um, we have a, now a regional grains and staples program that's focused on um, building up the um, supply chain of our local uh, grains. And um, we're also very focused um, in addition to coalition building on equity. And so we, um, during the pandemic, uh, this was actually prior <laughs> to when I came to Glenwood, but uh, I've been working in the regional food system uh, in the Hudson Valley for about 20 years now. Uh, so uh, our, the, a lot of the member farms that are in our Hudson Valley CSA coalition, um, it was really a, a grassroots effort. They came to us at Glenwood and said, you know, a lot of farms are, we're losing our markets, um, our restaurant and wholesale customers are, um, you know, we, we don't have them anymore. They disappeared overnight. At the same time, they were seeing that a lot of people in the community were, a lot more people were experiencing food insecurity, um, and there was a lot more demand in on the emergency food system, on our um, food pantries and soup kitchens. I'm sure, you know, where all you are was <laughs> the same. <laughs> um, and so they kind of just said, well, what can we do? And so uh, that's how the Food Sovereignty Fund started. And the idea was to contract uh, uh, and invest in farms um, that weren't able to participate in the state and federally funded uh, programs that were, that were contracting farms to grow for food access. And so we worked with BIPOC, LGBTQ+, and women farmers to grow for, um, for food access organizations. Um, it started really small in 2020 with $17,000 worth of contracts. And um, now, for the past two years, we've um, made $300,000 worth of contracts to 20 farms and that are going to 20 food access organizations in the Hudson Valley and New York City. Um, and yeah, so that has been a way to both um, invest in communities that have been divested in for a long time through that program and also get the highest quality food uh, to people who need it um, and to get, um, and also culturally appropriate food into the um, emergency food system. Uh, we also, um, for a few years now, have been working on a program called CSA as a SNAP which is, I know a lot of you are familiar with the Gus Schumacher Nutrition Incentive Program, and so it was a pilot program that we started with that funding in, um, well, it was funded in 2019 and meant to launch in uh, the spring of 2020. <laughs> so we did launch, uh, but uh, it was, uh, the goal was to work with um, 
community health organizations to do outreach and so obviously that was not feasible and so it was kind of a bit of a reshuffle and we did a two-year pilot um, uh, but ended up um, getting food to through five farms um, where we were able to both um, subsidize shares at 50 percent and also um, allow uh, uh, members with SNAP to pay weekly. And so community-supported agriculture, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with it, but it's really important for farms because they get an investment from their members at the beginning of the season when they need it. But for SNAP customers, um, it's, not, it's not allowable through the SNAP program um, to pay more than two weeks in advance of receiving food. And also, the reality is people just don't have you know, the, that money for, uh, to pay upfront for a full share. And so this program was a way to kind of bridge that structural mismatch between the two programs, um, which is a lot like what um, we were doing now with Harvest Share or Basis. Um, and so yeah, this year we're working with six farms and uh, providing about 100 shares to uh, SNAP customers throughout the Hudson Valley. Great. Um, so again, just like, I uh, want to just really provide some context about the work that we were doing uh, during the pandemic, right? I think with uh, uh, for CPC, our organization really provides human services. I would say from, you know, ranging from childcare to academic enrichment to youth services, job development, language access, uh, you know, working with community members uh, with uh, different needs, uh, working with older adult services, mental health support, so on and so on. And we really didn't have the uh, capacity or any experience like uh, providing food, uh, providing uh, meal services like, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic. But I think as a, as a result of all the needs and in the community, uh, when, uh, you know, food vendors and restaurants and grocery stores and markets uh, were shut down, uh, community members really didn't have any uh, access or very limited access to food. So I think uh, CPC as an organization and other community-based organizations as well to really had to pivot uh, to act as a, as a food pantry. Um, and we were able to really connect with a lot of donors and you know supporters and uh, and funders to be able to provide up to 500 hot meals like every week. And we work with uh, organizations like uh, you know West Glenwood or Grow NYC uh, to be able to provide about 300 boxes of uh, fresh veggies and groceries like to community members uh, every week. And I think part of the challenge is like uh, that. You know, a lot of community members, again, were very much homebound, whether it's like through fear, whether it's like a lack of mobility. Uh, so we were able to get a lot of volunteers, right, to be able to do a lot of the drop-off deliveries or whatnot, especially from young professionals at the time who had a lot of time uh, because like maybe they too were working from home or their jobs were on pause. So it was really great to see a lot of the young people and, you know, and a community really coming together to support each other. So like uh, as much as the, uh, the pandemic was uh, very devastating, has such a negative uh, impact. It was also very heartening to see, again, all so many people was coming together to really uh, build community and support those like, uh, that were very much in need. And I think really just want to acknowledge like there were several organizations that uh, were 
kind of really born out of the pandemic. One was uh, an organization called Welcome to Chinatown. Uh, the other, Send Chinatown Love, and uh, another organization called Heart of Dinner. We worked with them to uh, provide, you know, fully cooked meal, fully cooked hot meals uh, to uh, to community members. And uh, again, these folks were really just like doing fundraising on, on the ground and just kind of really working to, again, support uh, local businesses, but also to make sure that a lot of the elderly, a lot of the vulnerable were able to get uh, a lot of these hot meals. So that was like something that was, again, very, very exciting for us. Thank you, Michelle and Steve, for just really illustrating all that has been going on during the pandemic, and it really set the context of some of the research that's gonna back up what Michelle and Steve have been saying. So at the neighborhood level, we conducted a food retail environment audit called the COVID closure study in 2020 and 2021, where we found that at the peak of the pandemic, food retail businesses were disproportionately impacted in Chinese ethnic neighborhoods versus comparison neighborhoods, disrupting the food supply chain for local residents, as Steve kind of talked about earlier. And so for our, our findings, we found that 40% of produce vendors were not operating during that time. And then to gather community input, we administered brief surveys, conducted in-depth interviews, and deployed a needs assessment. So from our brief surveys, we learned that online cooking demonstrations, access to vegetables that their families like to eat from local farmers, and learning how and where to grow vegetables safely were the top-ranked choices for future for programming. So we kind of kept this in the back of our mind as we later on implemented the program. We also learned about what vegetables were of most interest to them, and in case you guys are curious, for our community members, it was tomatoes, pea shoots, and choy sum. And then we also learned which they disliked, and which they didn't know how to prepare. And all this information was really helpful to our local farm partner, Brooklyn Grange, to guide their growing activities and place their seed orders. And then um, pivoting to in-depth interviews, we did interviews with 19 community members, and we learned that Chinese American adults in Brooklyn shared interest in a produce box or a CSA program, primarily to support their own health, to interact socially with farmers and other participants, and gain access to fresh, um, culturally appropriate produce. And so, but then we also learned that major concerns for participation included, especially among older adults, included language barrier, um, transportation, and mobility issues. And then lastly, um, we at NYU did a needs assessment. Um, we did it for Asian American adult New Yorkers in collaboration with Coalition for Asian American Children and Families and with CPC in 11 Asian languages and in partnership with 25 other community-based organizations shown on the left. And so the needs assessment highlighted the fact that accessing food was cited as the number one challenge during the pandemic. And so now moving on a little bit to talk about the BASIS program itself. So BASIS is a community-centered, equity-driven, multi-level strategy to improve diet for immigrant communities in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. We have a community-facing name called Harvest Share because FACES was a grant name and it means nothing to our community members. So it's also important to think about like naming and branding and marketing. Um, and so BASIS has five pillars illustrated in this diagram, food access, nutrition, education, experiential learning, and policy, which were identified in our group model building workshop. And then we added a fifth pillar, um, which is an important uh, driver of food security, which is economic security. 
and I'm gonna run through each of the five pillars and then also let, again, let our beautiful community partners talk a little bit about their input into this program so you just don't always hear from us. So with the food access, um, food access is in the form of a subsidized fresh produce box or CSA program that is grown by our farm partner which is based in Sunset Park, they're a rooftop farm. Um, and also we added another farm partner, um, Angel Family Farm in upstate New York. And so the two of them would grow Chinese or Mexican specific vegetables for our community members. Um, and to just track back a little bit, in the traditional CSA model, an individual purchases a share from a farm before the growing season, as Michelle has said, and then receive allotments of the harvest at set time points, which is usually weekly um, throughout the season. But um, so CSAs are an established evidence-based model, but uptake has historically been by educated white women. So we're taking the same model, we're culturally adapting the messaging, marketing, and contents for immigrant communities so that they're willing to participate. And actually last year we had a pilot produce box program um, in June through October, and the produce box was subsidized and featured Chinese vegetables grown at Brooklyn Grange for neighborhood residents. And every Tuesday participants picked up their produce box that contained five to six different types of vegetables for $5 that they can pay by SNAP weekly. And these five to six dollar uh, vegetables had a market value of $20. So they were getting a pretty heavy subsidy. We enrolled 40 community members um, within four days of starting recruitment, which showed the interest of, gaining, of people having gaining culturally appropriate fresh produce. And through kind of some surveying that we did, 100% would recommend the program to others. They all loved it, and we had like a lot of repeat enrollees this year when we started it up again. Um, we had really high attendance. We had 90% attending weekly pickup events, and um, science-wise, 65% ate a greater variety of vegetables compared to baseline, and 65% reported that the number of vegetables they didn't know how to pre prepare decreased. And we also used the veggie meter, which some of you guys may have seen at the digital tech playground. Um, and we saw an increase in skin carotenoid scores by 39 units, which is roughly two-fifth cups of vegetables. And skin carotenoids are an indicator of one's fruit and vegetable consumption. So their fruit and vegetable consumption has increased. For nutrition education, we're providing it in two different ways. So in the first way, we're providing it in the form of in-language and culturally appropriate recipe cards with health and vegetable preparation information that produce box participants can receive weekly. You can see that in the green pictures here. Um, and the second way we're providing this is through nutrition education through our caring sessions. Um, caring is a mouthful. It stands for culturally and cost-appropriate rapid intergenerational nutrition guidance. And it's a culturally and linguistically adapted nutrition education program that encourages a multi-generational approach to healthy eating habits at home by uh, offering culturally appropriate healthy swaps that also incorporate food costs and neighborhood access considerations. So for example, for the Chinese community, rather than just eating white rice, um, a healthy swap would be to do a rice combo by integrating white rice with root vegetables such as pumpkin or sweet potato and whole grains as well. So our third pillar is experiential learning and it will comprise of farm tours at Brooklyn Grange, um, gardening workshops that aim to bring together community members with deep knowledge of gardening practices as well as those interested um, and gardening to interact with our farming partners. 
We're also gonna be doing cooking demonstrations or taste testing sessions to kind of encourage people to try different types of vegetables or learn how to prepare things they don't know. And we're also doing arts, music, and physical activity sessions. Um, and this, is, this pillar is really an area where we're finding opportunities for partners also to collaborate together and also responding to the interests of the community. So for example, this year, a lot of our families at the farm have little kids and they've expressed a lot of interest in kind of involving their kids to learn about farming or to engage in a farm space. And so we're offering a lot more opportunities to do that. Um, the fourth pillar is policy. So for policy, we are currently assessing the local food policy, mainly cultural mismatch in food pantries, um, as well as appropriateness of recommended dietary patterns and social determinants of health affecting food access for immigrant communities. And so with these findings, we're aiming to explore opportunities to participate in the food policy scene. So later this fall, we're gonna hold a town hall to kind of report back all these findings that we're starting to get. And we'll be inviting a lot of our community partners, different community organizations, as well as local policymakers. And then the last pillar is economic security, which mostly comprises of workforce development for individuals where we're linking them to wraparound services provided by our community partners such as CPC or other community partners such as Hot Bread Kitchen, Mixteca, and Family Health Centers at NYU, and mainly gonna do that through SNAP and WIC enrollment. Um, I'm not sure if all of you guys know, but especially for immigrant communities, um, there's a lot of hesitation, so there's a lot of support needed to kind of get them to enroll into these programs and to really combat some misinformation and misconceptions they have about our service, um, SNAP and WIC services. Um, we're also going to do small business owner support and we're gonna link them to relevant relief programs or trying to link them to farms and kind of get them subsidies for produce and throughout this whole process provide language assistance as necessary. So I just ran through all of five pillars very briefly, but it's a lot of work and I'm gonna kind of let Michelle and Steve to add on kind of what they um, have been doing as we're implementing this program. Thanks, Lane. So, yeah, I guess um, a couple of things that I uh, wanted to talk about that I think have contributed to the success of the program are, um, uh, well, I think like one of the things that uh, we've been able to bring, I think, are these longstanding relationships in the community that obviously that you've built at NYU and like some of the them that I have, you know, we've had at Glenwood. Uh, there are farmers that I've been working with for 20 years who are um, Mexican Latin farmers who have been growing culturally specific foods for their communities um, for, yeah, for, for 20 years now. Um, and so when we went into the first uh, year, full year of the program out of the pilot, um, we were able to bring in Angel Family Farm, um, and they already had a lot of relationships in the communities. They're already bringing food into the into Sunset Park in a lot of different ways through their other community-supported agriculture programs and farmers markets. Um, and they're now a multi-generational farm, and so I think bringing them into the to the program was um, was just helpful with I think bringing 
just involving another um, immigrant group in Sunset Park. Uh, and um, to allow them to fully participate in the planning and the leadership of the program, we've brought in a lot of uh, language justice and a language justice approach. Um, and so that is, language justice is the idea that all people have the right to participate in the language in which they feel most powerful and comfortable and so that they're understood and can understand. Uh, and so it's more than just providing interpretation and translation. It's also um, a movement that's deeply tied to social justice and bringing, um, yeah, just sort of incorporating that at a deep level and ensuring that, like I, like I said, that people can be involved in the leadership and planning. And so we've brought that into our uh, biweekly planning meetings. Um, which has been really helpful. And so we have um, a team of, uh, we have a Hudson Valley Language Justice uh, Collaborative that we've been working with, and they help us um, do uh, interpretation in the meetings. And also we've been uh, doing some activities so that um, all of us as participants can kind of talk about our experience with language justice and how it's affected us. Um, And yeah, and I guess the other aspect is just the technology piece. This year we've, um, uh, for Angel Family Farm, they didn't have a way of um, selling their CSA shares online. Um, and so we've started working with a platform called uh, GrownBuy, which is um, a cooperative um, platform that's owned by the farms that are on it um, so that they own their own data. Um, and it allows them to manage their um, payments and customer communications. And um, GrownBuy is now partnering with the USDA, and they're going to, they're now, they're just rolling out uh, online SNAP for farms. And so they're the first uh, platform that will have online SNAP processing for small farms. Um, and which is really important because um, in, not so much in this program, but in community-supported agriculture with CSA, a lot of times when people want to pay with SNAP, it's there's a very different customer experience that happens. You know, for people who've paid up front, they can just come in and pick up their share and go. But for SNAP members, they need to do a weekly transaction. It can be, you know, just re, re sort of re-traumatize people can just create additional stigma. And so if the transaction can happen online, it will just be a lot more seamless um, and um, just easier all around and, and less. Uh, so hopefully that will be, I don't, if it doesn't get rolled out this year with, uh, with Harvest Share, hopefully next year we can incorporate that into the program. Thank you, Michelle. Um, I, I think with, with Harvest Share, one of the things that like, we're really excited about is like it's a completely community and partner-driven initiative. Like, and one of the components and one of the side projects that we've been able to develop was a, a rooftop garden at our community center. Um, I think just kind of really working with all that, roughly about 20 partners uh, and just sharing resources and sharing experiences, like we're able to really start up a, a community a rooftop garden, like uh, folks were donating, uh, whether it's like compost, whether it's like uh, pots, 
whether it's like ceilings or just really sharing best practices and expertise, uh, we were able to develop the, uh, the rooftop garden that was, is completely managed by our older adult community members. And uh, I think as of uh, this past Friday, we started harvesting, uh, especially some of the uh, uh, you know, tomatoes and some of the, uh, the uh, peppers. Like I've had quite a few rounds of tomato already, but uh, it's really, really exciting. And I think in, for older adult community members, like uh, having that gardening aspect is uh, very much therapeutic, and our community members have completely uh, taken to it in terms of uh, just really again, building community, taking pride, and taking ownership into that garden. So we're really excited, and just really wanted to thank all the partners for for uh, contributing to that. Um, another aspect of uh, the success of Harvest Share, I think, really, Anno Celine and Michelle and my colleagues have mentioned, is uh, just really working on developing this project in a really culturally, culturally sensitive uh, lens, right? I think uh, all the crops are grown with our farming partners are a direct result of surveying and conversations with our Chinese community or our Mexican community. And all the, uh, the crops that are being grown are really, you know, are really used into recipes that our community members use in their daily lives. So that's, that's something that's like a really crucial in, in terms of the sustainability of this project. So uh, actually allow me to, to share one anecdotal story. So I think again, going back to uh, pandemic when uh, New York City went on pause, uh, and New York City have about, I would say 8.5 million people, and a lot of those people are uh, in the aging uh, community. Uh, so I think for all the older adult centers that were closed in New York City, there were so many individuals that were used to getting lunch and meals at the senior centers, they weren't able to anymore. So what uh, New York City and Department uh, for the Aging decided to do was uh, to do home deliver meals to folks that needed lunch or meals and things like that. Um, unfortunately, I think in the Chinese community, uh, when folks were receiving these meals, it came in forms of uh, you know, cold sandwiches, whether it's like a ham and cheese sandwich or things like that. And I think if you uh, maybe live with a, you know, a Chinese grandma or Chinese grandpa, like th that's something that uh, they won't be able to eat. I think culturally, you know, cold food is just uh, considered unhealthy. Uh, I think, you know, cold drinks and things like that are very much considered unhealthy. I think, uh, um, you know, on a hot day like this, like sometimes, uh, you know, for my dad, I ask him if he wants a, uh, you know, iced coffee or hot coffee. And just really giving him the option, he thinks I'm crazy. He, th he thinks I have like three heads or whatnot. Like uh, I would actually offer him like a, a, a cold drink. Uh, but that's, again, that's part of this, just really cultural sensitivity of it, right? Uh, you know, in, in Chinese community, uh, you know, having something warm, it's a way to kind of promote blood, you know, blood circulation. And I think just like, uh, things like that uh, is very important to learn. And I think New York City did face uh, a lot of backlash in terms of uh, just the meals that were delivered to some of the, the immigrant community. Um, so I think as a, as, a, as a learning tool, it was really crucial for, you know, whether it's New York City or Department for the Aging to really engage some of the partners to make sure that uh, folks are being served, uh, you know, culturally appropriate meals. And, and it's not that folks are not appreciative, but I think it's just like, uh, it's inedible in, in some culture. And I think with New York City being such a city of immigrants, it's crucial to kind of really engage community to, to make sure that uh, the meals and the food are culturally sensitive. Thank you, Michelle and Steve. Um, 
So just to move us forward, in case any of you are interested, there are a number of evaluation components to this uh, complex project. So I just want, I'll just spend a couple slides going over these. Um, so this slide depicts one portion of the evaluation. We will be recruiting, we have recruited about 140 harvest share participants from the Chinese and Spanish speaking communities. So I say Spanish speaking because about 75% of them are uh, Mexican American, but there are other Latino groups as well, such as Puerto Rican and uh, Guatemalans. And um, so this is in Sunset Park and the surrounding and surrounding neighborhoods of Sunset Park. And in parallel, we have been recruiting comparison community participants from Mott Haven, South Bronx, which is a Spanish speaking ethnic neighborhood um, in northern Manhattan, Flushing and Manhattan Chinatown, which are two Chinese ethnic neighborhoods. And we will be doing pre post evaluations of the basis harvest share participants and the comparison community participants, and then comparing those pre-post surveys to each other. Um, now again in the fall, and then we will be repeating this design for years two through five. So this is a five-year program. And we anticipate that there will be some repeat folks over this five-year period, and we will account for this in our analysis. And at each time point, the participants are asked to complete a survey. They do that veggie meter reading, um, and they also receive a monetary incentive. And the survey questions include a number of items on vegetable intake, food insufficiency and insecurity, stress, happiness, and ethnic identity. We are also going to be doing um, qualitative research. So this is our tentative qualitative schedule. We always have like new things that pop up that we want to explore. This spring, we are conducting key informant interviews amongst uh, Latina community members to receive general feedback to implement a produce box program. As Michelle mentioned, um, our Angel Family Farm and Mixteca, two of our partner new partners, were already working together and working with Michelle to do um, to, to provide culturally appropriate Mexican produce. But we wanted to garner additional feedback on if there are any other ways that we can um, improve the program for the community. Um, we are also doing key informant interviews to understand cultural mismatch in local food distribution programs. And um, as, as uh, Celine mentioned, we're getting ready to uh, release these results in the next couple months. Um, and then this fall, we will be interviewing our participants to better understand any unmeasured benefits of program participation, such as happiness or connection with their culture any benefits for their families or children, a sense of community, et cetera, some of those things that might be a bit harder to capture within a quantitative survey. And then in 2024, so January of 2024, and again, two years later, we, we, we will be doing um, a robust partnership evaluation and social, social networks analysis amongst the partners. We are also doing a number of assessments using administrative data at the community level. These include food retail audits to assess the status of fruit and vegetable vendors, um, Celine described this program before the COCLO study, which we did in 2020, we did again in 2021, and we just completed in 2023 round to look at what happened to produce vendors in a number of New York City neighborhoods. And um, this summer we will also be doing a produce item price audit because uh, from our Brooklyn Grange partner, she had actually shared in speaking to one of the participants that um, the participant was saying, gosh, some of the produce that you supply to us in this in this produce box we can't even afford in the community. And so we wanted to do a little bit of a price audit 
on some of the popular items. We already gathered what what stores these folks are shopping at, and so we're going to do a little bit. Uh, we're going to do a. We're not going to do a little bit. We're going to do a neighborhood audit of um, the prices of some of these items that we are um, providing within these produce boxes. And then lastly, in New York City, we are fortunate to have the New York City Community Health Survey, which is essentially like a New York City BRFSS. And uh, we'll be looking at neighborhood data for um, fruit and vegetable intake and self-rated health and some other indicators. Okay. So just some closing thoughts and then we'll move to Q&A. Um, Approaches that tackle systems are complex, but feasible. And this is definitely facilitated by gathering multi-sector and diverse stakeholders, centering community input, and adopting a language justice approach. And as for lessons learned, building a program that's driven by community preferences and priorities can lead to high engagement and interest, improved health outcomes, and therefore sustainability in the long term. So I would be remiss if I did. <laughs> There's a few partners here, but there are so many partners on this project, and I wanted to acknowledge them here. Brooklyn Grange, CPC, Glenwood, uh, the table at Family Health Centers, which is a food pantry at our health system, a partnership, with a, which is a social marketing firm, firm that specializes in reaching diverse communities, Angel Family Farm Earth Matter, where, which is a composting organization, in New York City, Hot Bread Kitchen, PS169, which is an elementary school, um, the New York Academy of Medicine, Mixteca, the Mexican Coalition, the Bridge Project, Curio, um, and then we have a number of consultants that do music therapy, arts therapy for children, um, Chinese traditional medicine, and we've been, uh, and, and our language justice consultants. And then just to highlight, um, in addition to Celine, we have a, a number of really wonderful coordinator, Victoria Lanza, who works side by side with Celine to support the Spanish speaking community. Um, and we have a lot of medical students and public health students <laughs> that volunteer for us. And some are paid, some are not paid, um, but we have, we, have a, a, and we have a really nice executive advisory board and we also have a community advisory board that prefer not to be named, but also wanna acknowledge them. So that's it. I can open up the floor for any questions. Um, and I'd be, yes, so thank you for your attention. And we'd be happy to take any questions. OK. Any thoughts, any questions? Yes, please. Hi, my name is Sam Cook, and I'm from Teachers College. Oh, yeah. Local. I've read lots of your work. Um, <laughs> well, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Um, I mean, I'd also be curious to hear from our partners in case there are challenges. I think, I think the number one thing, I can just start off, that the number one thing that I, I've learned um, about doing this kind of work is you really have to listen to people. You really have to have conversations early. You know, you might be not, you might not even have any funding yet, but you just wanna start having conversations early with community partners. And then the ones that you really jive with are the ones that you keep working with. And so like I had a, you know, there was a, we, I got linked up with Michelle through like a foundation funder and got linked up with Brooklyn Grange and the table and, and we just had conversations and we we're like, wow, we're all, and you know, Steve, Steve, I've worked with Steve for many years and we've worked with CPC for like 20 years. 
Um, but we just started having these conversations and we realized all of our priorities are the same while we're really doing all these intersecting things that are aligned. We're all trying to help. Um, and and we, we were all sort of committed to that mission of like culturally appropriate food. Um, and so I think the, but the listening part is critical because all the different partners have different priorities and you know acad academics can get really in their hole about what, I know not all of you are academics, but like any, any person in their sector can get very siloed, right? And so it's important to just understand Wow, you know what really drives what really drives us is maybe this like NIH funding, but what really drives others is they have like, you know, Steve has like 50 people at his doorstep that he needs to feed. That's a completely different set of priorities and so you have to work backwards and together to and then you have to keep communicating. You know, you can't just assume like, oh, once everything's all set up, everything will be great. We have um, you know, we have we have check-ins every 2 weeks with the whole group. We have monthly check-ins you know, individually with each organization. And we just and we just say, hey, if something's not working for you, tell us. If something is working for you, tell us. But I don't know if you have anything that you want to add or. Um, yeah, I think I've learned, I've learned a lot about working in partnership through being part of this program and how to do it well and I think like I would I would say challenges that I've seen with other efforts with like working with a lot of partners are trying to do something too soon together before there's like a really strong foundation of the relationship I think you kind of you know need to do that relationship building before you start working on a big project like this um, and then um, I think also just valuing people's time and compensating people for their participation at, at every level and, and not especially um, community members, you know, and, and for like for the like contributing to research and surveys and things like that. I think just, yeah, making sure to value everyone. Yeah. So that's been really great. Yeah, and having fair compensation built into your budgets for each of the organizations too, you know, and talking about that beforehand, like, hey, this is what I think I can set aside for your organization. Is that okay with you? What's a reasonable before the RFA for a grant comes out? You know, any of that, you're you're sort of working. You got to do it all at the same, you know, at once. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, Steve, go ahead. I just want to quickly, really share some quick, uh, a quick point. I think you know, again, you know, our colleagues has mentioned like just like the community partner aspect of it and, and is completely uh, completely driven, right? Everyone has an like, equal share. But I think it's also important to acknowledge like some of the economic factors uh, in terms of like the, uh, you know, the food boxes. You know, and, and Celine mentioned like the, the food boxes are heavily subsidized, whether it's $5 a, a box or 7 or $11 a box. It doesn't seem like a huge commitment, but I think working with the community that we are working with, uh, that can be like a huge commitment, right? And I think uh, we have to continue to understand that uh, we, make sure we have to make, meet the needs and, you know, uh, what our community members are looking for. And that really includes a continued conversation, continued surveying, uh, really continued engagement. So I think that's, a, that's, a, that's an important tool. Are any of you all working with um, immigrant communities within the, the areas that you're in? Or have you encountered some of these issues with culture or language, food waste? A little bit. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's been, um, so for us, we are working with the 
Yeah, so that was pretty, that was formative work also. I mean, first of all, I'll say that if you, I don't know if you're in academia or community or, or what sector you're in, but you, okay. You'll often find that like, um, I'm from the academic sector and like you'll often find that if you talk to the community partners, they're like, we've been doing this like cross-cultural stuff for years. You know, like Steve mentioned, they serve mostly Chinese folks, but then they're also serving um, uh, Spanish-speaking individuals as well. and the Arabic community, the Jewish community, and all that stuff. So, but what we've actually done in our center, so we're at the, I'm at the Center for the Study of Asian American Health, Celine and I are there, and um, we are often in a situation where we're working with Asian Americans. And so, you know, what does that even mean? And so, you know, one, one study that I'll cite was a CDC-funded study called, it was part of the REACH program, which is like ra racial ethnic activities for community health or something like that. And we worked across um, 12 different faith-based organizations, but with four different Asian communities. So we were working with Asian Indian um, Sikh, uh, Sikh Gurdwaras, Bangladeshi mosques, Filipino churches, and Korean churches. And essentially what, and we did this, we did the same sort of thing here, where from the, from the outset, you sort of have to understand what the linking value systems are across the different groups. So we're working with Chinese and Mexican communities. They are literally, if you looked at a, a puzzle of Sunset Park, they're literally two halves of the puzzle. The Mexican community he is here and the Chinese community is here, but all their kids are going to the same schools. They're using the same social services. They're, you know, their older adults are going to the same senior centers. And so there are, and, but then also just from like a demographic, ethnographic literature perspective, there are lots of similarities between Mexican and Chinese immigrants. So we didn't go into that in this background, but just from a demographic perspective, like economically, like two parent households, like the poverty level, all, a lot of those things are similar. But then if you actually del delve into like the dietary, you know, similarities, like, or cultural similarities, like family is really important. Food is really important. Grandparents as primary caregivers are really important. And those are things that are universal across both. But then you work specifically with the, the Mexican-American family-owned farm, with the Mexican organization, and with a Spanish-speaking coordinator, and with a language justice consultant. And then with the Chinese work we're doing, we have a similar you know, sort of parallel of the partners that are serving that, that community. And so you're like able to take a universal approach but then you're also, you know, respecting the culture, the language, and different needs within that community. And the Reach Far project across the churches was similar. Like we took something, it's like fruit uh, congregate meal standards. We said, hey, this is what the New York City Department of Health has suggested in terms of different standards, like offer water, low-fat dairy, you know, no juice or things like that. And then so we would go to our community partners, each of the different faith-based organizations, and say which one of these do you think you could do? So again, it's like we're taking, that was a little bit of a different thing. So in this project, we are taking like cultural, sociocultural, demographic similarities and then building. 
whereas in the health department one, we took an evidence-based evidence-based program that was being implemented at the policy level, and then we asked them to pick and choose which ones worked for them. And so in the same way, we were able to evaluate across all four, even though, so it's expensive. It's hard. Like the needs assessment we do, we translate into 11 languages. It's not, it's not like, you know, you can't send, the kinds of languages we're translating into is not something you can just send to a translation company. You know, you have to work with partners, you have to compensate the partners, like give them, money for reviewing the translations, for helping you with recruitment, all that stuff. So I would say if there are a couple that you could just start, if there's one that you could start with and then start thinking big, like about the big picture of like, what are some specific similarities? Like are these two groups in this 10%, you know, are there, are there any similarities with the 90%? Are there, are there, you know, are there, or is it really just language? Is it just this, you know, these specific food items? If you start with just one, and then you sort of try to think big across however many are in your 10%, then I think there's a way to bridge from the 90 to the 10, and there's a way to bridge within the 10. Yeah, and and the best, the best thing to combat the fear is to then hire diverse people to give you their input so that you're not, I like I'm actually Korean, so sometimes I feel like an imposter doing this work because I'm like, neither of these communities, but, but like as long as you're working with partners and great staff and community health workers and volunteers that are like, oh, hey, I could tell you about that, I could tell you about this aspect, then you're, then you're being authentic. You're just giving resources to, the, to that authenticity. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you so much.